So we've been uh, reading over some time now the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, which is called 1 Corinthians. We know it's the second letter because early on we find a reference to a letter he's already written, which makes 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians. Second uh, Corinthians, of course, which we have in the New Testament, is, as I've told you along the way, on Fourth Corinthians, because there's another letter which we don't have in between two and four, or one and two, just to confuse you even more. Um, so we've come to the end, or we're just at the end of First Corinthians. We're at chapter 16. The last two Sundays were unusual because the European Championships were on and the cycle race going right past the building here. So as most of you know, we changed what we did and uh, we had more of a kind of open doors day on both of those Sundays with a slightly different preach at five o'clock. So we return to uh, the grand finale. I think I'm going to finish it this week, but if I don't, I'll finish it next week. Um, But uh, I'm going to read then from 1 Corinthians 16, chapter 5 through to verse 24, the end of the book. Let's hear God's word. So this is Paul's closing greetings uh, or closing remarks to the church at Corinth, the, 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 the substance of what he wanted to say to them, uh, the things he'd heard about that he wanted to take issue with them, the questions he wanted to answer, the issues that he wanted to um, probably rebuke them for uh, had all been dealt with. Uh, so this is just the, the closing, uh, closing remarks. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt, sending him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers." Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. And so we have, if you like, these little, this little tidying up section, just uh, the, the little practical notes on the end of this letter. I don't know what kind of impression those of you that have journeyed through most of 1 Corinthians, because I, I don't imagine everyone has been for every single, uh, every single chapter, every single sermon. But I wonder what your impression of this church is in Corinth. Just briefly, again, recapping. <laughs> you should know this by now. <laughs> but Corinth, a busy port city, had a tra- and a, an important crossing route in Greece, just uh, west of Athens, the top of the, um, I always struggle to, the, um, you know the bit of Greece that's got the three prongs? Yeah, okay. It's the peripen, no, yeah, there we go. Anyway, so it just sits in that isthmus there. Corinth had been uh, a vibrant port city with a shrine to Aphrodite that legend has it, or records record something like 1,000 temple prostitutes to the shrine um, of Aphrodite. It was a Greek center and a fairly kind of pagan one with all sorts of uh, gods and shrines to various uh, pagan deities until about 144 BC when it was destroyed. And then in about 46 BC, the Romans rebuilt it, and it became a Roman center of administration and governance and so on. So there'd been a hundred years where it had just been ruins. But when it was rebuilt, it quickly gained and regained prosperity because of its um, strategic prominence in commercial and economic and trade terms. And so that meant that it was a, a, a multicultural, cosmopolitan city with people from all, uh, from east and west and north and south. It was a place where there was lots of trade and therefore lots of money and lots of injustice. There were people who were well-off, high-born, the, the wealthy, um, uh, the, the kind of um, landowners and business owners and so on. And then there were the people right down at the bottom. There were the slaves and in between everything you might imagine. And I just reflecting on the various points that Paul's made about this church, tried to get a flavor of what this church was like and was in danger of becoming if Paul didn't stay on top of them. Because this was a church where fairly early on, Paul takes the task because they're, they're at risk of dividing along, along party lines because different people in the church prefer different leaders, different spiritual heroes. So some look to Cephas or Peter, Simon Peter, who was head of the church in Jerusalem as being the main man. Some people look to Paul as being the main man because he planted the church in Corinth. But there were a lot of people who liked a man called Apollos, who's referenced here. And Apollos came from Alexandria in North Africa, was a very, very well-educated, intelligent, scholarly Jew who came to faith um, and were helped by this couple uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Interestingly enough, every time Paul mentions Priscilla in his letters, you've probably you've heard of Aquila and Priscilla, and they pop up in Acts, and they're called Aquila and Priscilla in Acts. But every time Paul uh, writes their names, he actually calls them Aquila and Prisca. So uh, it's, it's the shortened version that Paul uses. But this couple, and often four out of six times where they're referenced, Prisca's name comes before Aquila's name. So she was a prominent and significant woman. 
And so this couple uh, had met Apollos and had shown him more adequately the way of the gospel, the way of Jesus. And so from this solid Hebrew basis, Apollos uh, had a, a scholarly mind and a rich understanding of the Hebrew roots of the faith, but was a believer in Jesus. And so you've got a church that, that is always never far away, uh, it seems, from, from, from dividing along fault lines. And the fault lines were all sorts of, of fault lines. Sometimes at the beginning we saw it had to do with, with who, who's, the, who's your favorite leader. And I suppose we can find an echo of that in, in the church because there is in, in certainly 21st century and probably certainly late 20th century Christianity, there's the, there's the cult of the church or the church leader. Who, who are you going to follow? Who's got the best this or the best that? Who's the, the best teacher? Uh, where's the best worship? And so on. And, and obviously, we, we, there, are, there are lots of churches, but one of the things that we've looked at as we've gone through this letter is this temptation for us as Christians to, to silo ourselves in one church and even to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches or other denominations with a sense of rivalry or suspicion, or, or they're not us because they're over there. As though Jesus had lots of little brides instead of one bride and one church. And so there's always that temptation for us as Christians to look on the other as other even though Jesus' goal for you and me is to create one people. And that's the miracle that we've, we've been wrestling with all the way through this letter. The challenge, the supreme goal of the gospel is to bring back together and bring back together to God a people who've been separated and divided. And so the church in Corinth threatened to divide over leadership lines, who their hero was. The church in Corinth threatened, uh, was a church that had tinges of immorality about it. It was someone who was in a relationship with his father's wife, and the church was applauding. And they'd completely failed to see that there was anything wrong with something that Paul could see quite clearly was, was immoral and, and counter to the Word of God. And, and whether we, you know, it's not easy to talk about now, but what is sexual immorality? Because in our world today, it is rife and accepted and acceptable. And indeed, there, there are agendas driving forward, uh, which make it very difficult. I was reading just the other day, a friend of mine that I've known for 30-odd years, who has had uh, all manner of difficulty because at one point he agreed to, to stand up and speak out for a traditional understanding of human sexuality in the whole LGBTQ debate. And from that moment on, it has come back again and again and again and again, and that people who are not willing to countenance any other view than the contemporary politically correct view, that now is the only truth that's allowed and so has found himself the victim of various press smear campaigns, has had a pupil in the local school put in a complaint saying he shouldn't be a chaplain, and, and there are all sorts of moves to uh, block his ministry, not because he is hating anyone or expressing hatred, but because 
he holds to a traditional orthodox understanding of human sexuality. And so this church in Corinth was wrestling with uh, questions of, of sexual morality, and Paul was weighing in, holding up a mirror, shining a light, and saying, this should not be so. And no doubt in the church at Corinth, there were people saying, what does Paul know? He's so old-fashioned. <laughs> the church at Corinth was threatening to allow itself to be seduced by uh, marketplace idolatry. And we spent some time thinking about how to get on in business. If you were a leather worker or a potter or, or had some kind of trade or craft, a stonemason, a sculptor or whatever, you needed to belong to a trade guild. And those trade guilds often centered around pagan shrines where offerings were brought to the god of that trade and meat was offered and dedicated to the god of that trade. And to get on in business meant going to your trade guild, your club, and eating the food that uh, was eaten there, even though some of it had been dedicated to a, a pagan god. And so there were questions of conscience. How do you stand up and be counted in a world where it might cost you some uh, lucrative financial deal to just stand up and say, I'm sorry, on grounds of conscience, I can't come and eat at your table? And so there was the challenge for the church in Corinth of, of, of money and advancement versus loyalty to Jesus and integrity in, in terms of their conduct. A substantial bit of the, the book of Corinthians, of course, is devoted to dealing with spiritual gifts. And here was a church that was threatening to, to divide along the fault lines of who got which gift and which one was more important than the other. And people vying for prominence and, and, and position and place in order to be seen as, as important. I've got the prophetic gift. Well, I've got the healing gift. Well, I've got the word of knowledge gift. And public worship or, or the worship of the church threatening to descend into a, just a cacophony of chaos as everyone was trying to make their own mark and be seen. And then finally, there's a spectacular chapter on the resurrection because there were some in the church that had come in and infiltrated the church that were steering people away from that core truth about the resurrection of Jesus. And so, looking at laying out the whole picture, here is a church that's at danger of pride and vanity. A church where wealth was a challenge for some, sexual morality a challenge for others teaching that was going to lead them away from the core understanding of the resurrection. Theological, then, challenges, if you like. And that the chapter of 1 Corinthians that is probably uh, most, most known and most read, one probably, arguably, one of the most read parts of the New Testament is, is chapter 13, where Paul reminds them that the unifying force at the heart of everything that they are called to be is love and loving service, humble loving service towards one another. And so as we look at these last verses, this summary verse uh, section, we find uh, little echoes, if you like, or little pointers 
There were some in the church that said, nah, Paul's not going to come. He just says he's going to come. You can never trust Paul to do what he says he's going to do. He says he's coming, but... There were probably some who didn't want Paul to come because they preferred Peter or Apollos, or they didn't actually like Paul's hardline stance on some things. But Paul came and said, after I go, uh, Paul writes and says, after I go through Macedonia, and Macedonia is then where Macedonia is now, (laughs) north of Greece. And so he had a plan to go from Ephesus, which was in Asia, but we know as Turkey, across to Macedonia, and then down. I've done it the wrong way for you. So Ephesus, across the top of the Black Sea to Macedonia, and then down to, to to Corinth. This was his plan, his plan to go and to be able to spend time. He was writing his letter from Ephesus and planning to go there, and planning to go and, uh, and continue the ministry of building up and, and repairing and, and teaching that church. But Paul knew opposition. I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me. And so when we hear of and we uh, read of opposition to uh, Christians, and it's rife in other parts of the world for all sorts of different reasons. It may be a, uh, may be a, a gender sexuality question or it may be a... a, a, a um, Christianity in, a, in another faith um, context, in another country where Christianity is not the dominant religion, and there's open persecution towards Christians, and particularly towards those who convert to Christianity. But it's the reality that the Christian church has known, and Paul wanted to carry on with the door of effective work that had been opened despite the opposition. And so whatever opposition there might be in our society that would, uh, might tempt us just to keep quiet or keep our heads down. Let's remember that Paul was bearing witness to Jesus in a climate and in a society that was no more favorably disposed to the gospel than parts of our own society are now. And a society that 50 or 60 years ago would have explicitly called itself Christian Britain is no longer. And so now we carry our uh, torch as Christians in a society that no longer wants the gospel, that will openly uh, reject it if it will not uh, meet the, the, the progressive agendas of the day in society in other ways. And so Paul is coming. Let's go back to these super apostles. Some follow Paul, some follow Cephas, some follow Paul. Follow, um, yeah, Paul, Cephas, and Apollos. And so he says, "I'm coming." And then he says, and this is the reason why I asked you to think about how old you were when you were given responsibility. He says, "Timothy's coming." When Timothy comes. See to it that he has nothing to fear when he is with you. Why would Timothy have anything to fear when he was with you? There's a church he's writing to. Goodness sake. (laughs) What is it about Timothy that might make Paul need to say, actually, 
look after this boy. Well, there's one big clue right there because Timothy was a boy. <laughs> 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's first pastoral epistle to Timothy was written after this letter to the Corinthians when Timothy was older than he is at this point. And in that later letter, Paul says to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You know, when I first came here to St. George's Tron, I'll be honest with you, it was a hugely intimidating experience. Because St. George's Tron is this city center church which has had a, a series of, of uh, great preachers and teachers and ministries along the way, and to step into any of their shoes, to, to attempt, to dare to come to a place as uh, center stage as this and be its minister seemed to me to be uh, a presumption and a, a difficult one at that. For those of you who are visiting five years ago, this church uh, stood empty for three months. The congregation that was here before fell out with the denomination of the Church of Scotland over the issue of human sexuality and the ordination of ministers in same-sex civil partnerships and so on, and left the congregation. And so I came, called by God, I firmly believe, as transition minister to come and replant a church here. And yet that's an overwhelming or was an overwhelming prospect in many ways. The church in Corinth were vying with one another over who was the, the biggest deal in the Christian world at that time. Was it Peter, the right-hand man of Jesus? Was it uh, Paul who planted the church? Was it Apollos, this erudite scholar, a learned, clever man? And you see, each of them were important, significant people. And the Corinthians, many of whom were rich, important, significant people themselves, were clearly looking for a hero just like them, someone good enough that I can look up to and call my leader. And perhaps that's why Paul takes the Corinthians down a peg or two right down at the beginning when he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I wonder if Paul wrote that to the church because having come from nowhere, they'd begun to feel a little bit important. They wanted to get a bit of a tip about themselves. And so Paul's sending this boy, Timothy. And this boy, Timothy, was Paul's, one of Paul's dearest protégés. Just a young lad and so he writes to the Corinthians to say, you treat my boy well. 
Don't imagine that just because he's a kid in your eyes and of no standing or no consequence that he can't be used powerfully by God. Do you know, I've gone along, uh, this has happened to me on more occasions than I care to remember, where I've gone along to, uh, I've gone along perhaps to a Christian conference or a meeting to hear a big-name speaker. And don't get me wrong, I'm, oftentimes the big-name speaker has spoken powerfully or well. But more often than not, God has spoken to me through someone I'd never heard of before. I can remember going along to uh, a kind of uh, a, a course with, with um, kind of, prayer ministry type stuff, and wanting that person to pray for me or minister to me because they were a name or they were important or they were known or significant or whatever, and feeling, uh, you know, that slight wave of disappointment when it's a kind of spotty 21-year-old who rocks up to pray for you, and you think, and then you discover, sorry, no offense to 21-year-olds, you get spots at any age. And yet, sometimes it will be that 21-year-old that will hear the word from God. Bob Eckblad, who has a powerful international ministry, speaks about the time when he went to uh, Toronto during the Toronto Blessing, much against his better judgment. He only went because his brother, who was addicted to crack cocaine, had gone to the Toronto uh, Airport Fellowship and had got prayed for and had got free from crack cocaine like that. And he was so amazed after all the experience he'd had of his brother, he, he was skeptical but thought he'd better go along anyway. And he went into the lineup for prayer after listening to the guy preaching from the front, and then he went into the lineup. And it was a kid <laughs> that came and stood in front of him. Well, not an actual kid, but you know, in his eyes, a kid. Bob's a man in his late 50s. And this boy came and he thought, same as I had thought. And the boy stopped when he went to pray for Bob, and he said, um, he said, I've got a picture of you um, sitting in a room with a group of men, and they're all sitting on blue chairs, and they're all wearing red uniforms. And Bob was blown away, because at that time, he was chaplain in a county jail in Washington State. And every week, he was going in doing Bible studies, reading God's Word with guys who'd never read it before in jail, and they sat on blue chairs, and the guys had red prison uniforms on. And this young guy prayed for Bob as he hit the floor. And, yeah, was powerfully moved, encountered by God. So don't imagine either of two things. Don't imagine that just because someone may be a no-name <laughs> that God can't use them. In my experience, the younger, the less polished, the better. As long as that person is full of faith and relying on God the Holy Spirit, how and why can God not use them? Remember the story of Naaman the Syrian who was insulted because the prophet Elisha wanted him to go and bathe in the river Jordan, and he said, well, we've got much better rivers in Syria. Why would I do such a thing? And pride and vanity and superiority got in the way of him receiving a gift. And it was his own servants that said, if he told you to do a hard thing, you would have done it. <laughs> it's an easy thing. So he went and he dipped, and as he was told, and he was clean. So that's point one. The other point is don't imagine if you are young that you have to go through a million degrees or training courses or whatever for God to use you. Don't imagine that it must be 
that other experienced, mature Christian leader's job to pray for that person who's needing prayer, because why do you think God, the Holy Spirit, can't use you? And if you set Peter, Paul, and Apollos at the beginning of the letter, at the end, Paul's saying, well, I am going to come, but I won't be there yet. And Apollos is going to come, but he doesn't know when. But Timothy's coming. (laughs) The boy's coming. And don't you dare imagine that God can't use the boy. And so make sure you treat the boy with honor and respect and make sure that you affirm the boy. Because when you're welcoming the boy, uh, then know that that boy is coming back to me, Paul. (laughs) And I will not be pleased if I discover that in your pride or your vanity, you've treated him with contempt or a lack of respect just because he's young. Those of you who are, you know, half my age, and happily in this church, there are quite a lot of you. You're the next generation. What's holding you back from stepping up, perhaps into some more explicit form of ministry or mission? Now, what ought to be holding you back is the call of God. But if if in your head you're thinking, well, he wouldn't call me, well, that's just rubbish. Because actually the question you need to ask is, what are you calling me to? And am I doing the thing that you're calling me to? Am I doing all that you're calling me to? So that no matter what, how ridiculous it may seem at my age and stage, actually God could use Timothy, a young man of no consequence, but with the commendation of Paul, to go to Corinth in his stead and be used. And then we have our brother Apollos. And there's probably not much more to say about Apollos. I have this theory. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, you know, everybody, everybody thinks the book of Hebrews was written by Paul because, well, you think, well, all the letters in the New Testament were written by Paul, right? Wrong. <laughs> Hebrews doesn't have a name attached to it at the beginning, at the end, or any reference inside it that says who wrote it. And the style is markedly different from anything that Paul or any of the gospel writers ever wrote. And it's a solid Hebrew text. He takes the Old Testament chunk by chunk by chunk and then says why this Old Testament thing was a picture of what was going to be fulfilled in Jesus, the temple, the priesthood. He rattles through all the kind of fundamental cores of Jewish belief and says all of them prefigured Uh, the coming of Jesus, and we're fulfilled by Jesus. So for what it's worth, my pet theory is Apollos wrote Hebrews. (laughs) I'm just putting that out there because I have the microphone. (laughs) We don't know much about Apollos, but we do know that Apollos was in demand. He was the conference speaker they really wanted to get, and yet they were going to get Timothy. You know, it may be that you think, well, I wish there was a better, more erudite, more equipped, more uh, trained Christian in my workplace or community. I wish there was somebody. I, I wonder if I could get Alistair to talk to this person. Talk to them yourself. I'm not saying I'm all those things, by the way. But that's the temptation to think that God can't use me and I need an expert. Well, Timothy was a young man 
and God could use him, and the experts weren't coming. And so we come towards the, uh, the, the, the home straight. Be on your guard. Here's a church that is open and vulnerable to attack from inside and from outside by the, the subtle voices of the world and the society that they lived in, by the voices of their own past, living in a city that had a thousand temple prostitutes and was still a port city, and we know what port cities are like. And so in terms of their own sexual morality and integrity, in terms of how they conducted themselves in business, they were vulnerable to the world and its ways as you and I are. What does it look like for us to keep our heads and our faith and our hearts pure with integrity and holiness as Christians today in Glasgow in 2018? What does it look like for us to be standout Christians in a society that runs by different values? Stand firm in the faith, perhaps referencing the temptation to say that resurrection is nothing and it's, it's not a real thing. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous be strong. And yet the strength that he's looking for is not a throw-your-weight-around strength, but just echoes the most powerful and profound strength that is the Christian church's secret, and it shouldn't be that secret weapon. Do everything in love. Do everything in love. Speak the truth in love. Live with integrity in love. Be united and reconciled to your brothers and sisters in love. Adopt standards in business and in your private life that are loving towards your brothers and sisters and towards, uh, and, and more importantly, of course, to God Himself in Jesus. And after all this chat about external speakers, Paul turns the spotlight onto a few of their own guys. Stephanus, the first converts in Achaia, whether that was Corinth or Athens, they're both in Achaia. It's a, it's a region below Macedonia. And have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. You know, and I, I would just make you blush, but I could substitute lots of names from this fellowship for Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because I see evidence amongst you of those who devote yourselves to the Lord's people. So hallelujah, well done, and keep it up because it's not unnoticed, it's not insignificant. And just as Paul could identify members of the fellowship and say to the others, look at these guys, because these guys are shining lights in terms of their passionate commitment to Jesus, their humble, loving service within the body of Christ, their zeal and enthusiasm to be about their Lord's business. And he urges the church to submit to such people, to honor and respect, and to learn from their dedication. And Paul says, I was glad, I was delighted when these guys arrived, because they've supplied what was lacking from you. I imagine there were days when Paul just despaired over the church at Corinth. I imagine there were days when the stuff that was reaching him and the questions that they were asking made him weary. I wonder if they'd heard anything that he'd taught them in the 18 months he spent with them already. You know, sometimes we get like that. 
We get despondent and discouraged because maybe a bunch of bad stuff hits us all at the same time, and it actually it can just take one person, one person to speak a word of encouragement, one person to show loving kindness, one person to stop and listen, one person to minister God's word, one person, even just by their conduct and their love for Jesus and the smile on their face and their heart of passion and their their faith and their faithfulness. You know, sometimes it can just take one person to give you hope and encourage you again when you may feel discouraged at the way of the world or trends that you see or, or things that might depress you. So that means that if it can be just one person, it also means that you and I can be that one person for someone else, right? We can be that Stephanus or that Fortunatus or that Achaicus who holding firm to Jesus, living in loving service, preserving integrity, living with passion for the things of the kingdom. There must have just been an absolute delight to Paul's heart. And so finally, his greetings. Paul would write his letters with a, a, a scribe, an amanuensis. But then at the end, we'd sign off in his own hand. You know, it's a wee bit like writing your round-robin letter at Christmas, which you, you write out and then you run off 30 A4 copies and then you just put a little line at the end that is personal. You sign it yourself in a little... Haven't seen you all year. Hope we can catch up in 2019, that sort of thing, you know. So getting to the end, Paul says, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. He's at Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, greet you warmly in the Lord. They may have been at Ephesus in the time, but they also ran, uh, had a house church in Rome as well. So they'd been in Corinth, but they were also in Ephesus and in Rome. And here's a couple who opened their home and hosted a house church. And Prisca was quite clearly a significant part of that team. All the brothers and sisters here in Ephesus send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And then from verse 21 onward, we go to Paul's own handwriting. So, you know, the amanuensis stops writing at verse 20. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So from here on in, it's Paul's own scribble. And it's quite amusing. Whether Paul wants to make his mark, having written all these slightly severe and quite fulsome things, he, the first thing he says to him, his own hand is, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. <laughs> because for Paul, it was love that was the challenge to this church, to love the Lord and to love one another. And anything that was detracting from that was unraveling the body of Christ, and Paul viewed them in the severest terms. Come, Lord, is, a, is an Aramaic expression, Maranatha. Come, Lord, because they lived with an expectation of Jesus' return. And it was the prayer that was on the lips of the early church all the time. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come again. Please come back quickly. It's a prayer we st we're still praying. Paul wanted the church in Corinth to be on their best behavior because he wasn't going to tell them exactly when he was going to show up. You know, a bit like a kind of spot check visit. But the bigger and more significant spot check 
was Jesus' reminder, which he taught through parables in the week of his passion, telling people to be alert, to be watching, because he would come suddenly and without warning. And then he signs off, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, which Paul used as a final greeting in many of his epistles. But this is the only one where in case the Corinthians were in any doubt with Paul's uh, straight, hard-line teaching about what he actually felt about them, he finishes by saying, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Because even, hopefully, the severest parent does so out of love. In Hebrews, we read that God disciplines his children. He disciplines them because he loves them. And Paul was the agent of God's discipline for this church in Corinth. And he would have his struggles with them because the words of this letter were not universally taken to heart. And it meant that Paul had to write another pretty hard direct letter to them. And it uh, didn't go down well in many quarters, but that's the stuff of 2nd or 4th Corinthians, and we're not going on to that, at least not just yet. We look to this letter because we too are a gathered church in a cosmopolitan, multicultural city, because we are a gathering of people from all sorts of backgrounds. And I hope along the way we've seen that there are, there's nothing new under the sun. There are parallels in the world with the world there and the world here, with the times then and the times now. And the challenge to us is the challenge that faced them, that at the heart of who we are is God's call to us as a people to live lives of holy and humble service before God and to be united to one another in love and to be committed to the body of Christ because if we are not known by our love, then we're just a club. We're just a club. We're just another community that gathers for whatever reason. But our calling is to be a people who love God and who love one another. And when the world can see that, and when they can experience the love of God themselves, then they begin to say, you've got something different. I don't know what it is, but I want that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this journey with our brothers and sisters, separated from us by time and space, and yet not by challenge. The challenge of uh, holiness and obedience, the challenge of humility, the challenge of love and loving service, the challenge of honoring you and of reflecting what it is to be one people one not just within these walls, but one with the body of Christ wherever it gathers, however much we might have differences of doctrine or theology. May we be and continue to be a people of grace, of holiness, of integrity, of love, that the world that passes by these doors and often comes in these doors may see and sense and know that this is a place where love is not just a four-letter word, but a living, breathing, dynamic reality in and through the people who name the name of Jesus in this place. And so as we go from here, Lord, we pray again that you will go before us into the places where we work and serve and study, the communities and families that we're part of, 
We pray for this city. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the churches of this city and ask that you will bless and strengthen and encourage the church, particularly in those places where it is weak, where it is perhaps discouraged and feeling. Uh, the chill winds of decline or opposition. And Lord, we pray not just for our own city, but for those places particularly in the world where with Paul so long ago, people are persecuted for naming the name of Jesus. And so whether near or far, whether at home or abroad, we pray that you would encourage especially our brothers and sisters who are facing opposition because they love you and they long to stand and serve you. Hear us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.